Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, hey, everybody, it's that time again. It's Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And tonight, she was born in India and came to the U.S. alone at age 16 to attend school. Today, she's a rising star uh, leading the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic Party in Congress. Pramila Jayapal went from Wall Street to Washington, and she now represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, elected the same night as Donald Trump. She's an outspoken advocate for immigrant rights... And there's a lot to cover here. So tonight, we're actually going to skip the chit-chat and no chit-chat. get right to get it. Right Congresswoman Jayapal, welcome to Political Breakdown. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for no being chit-chat. here. <laughs> no chit-chat. Well, <laughs> we can just chit-chat. chit-chat with yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it struck me as we were looking, you know, researching for the show that there's a lot written about the work you've done, obviously, before you got elected as an organizer. Um, but everyone kind of skips over the early part of your life. Like, yeah. you were born in India and you moved to Indonesia and Singapore. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, what kind of house you grew up in, um, what that moving around was like? Yeah, I um, I grew up in India. I was actually, I was born in Madras, now called Chennai, but my family is from Kerala, which is a very interesting part of India. Um, and we moved when I was four years old to Indonesia. And Indonesia, this was 1969, so I'm dating myself here, but Indonesia in 1969 had very little. There was one hotel, and we lived in this sort of low-level uh, house, nice house, um, and I spent 10 years of my life growing up in Indonesia. In between, we moved to Singapore for two years. We lived in a tiny little apartment in Singapore. Why did you guys move? My dad had gotten what was called an overseas posting. So he was very brave. He and my mom have always kind of wanted to see the rest of the world. Really strong belief in education. And by taking this job with Esso at the time, Exxon, an oil company, they promised him that they would pay for our education. And so that's really a big part of the reason they moved to Indonesia, because they got to send us to, um, it was an international school, and the company paid for it. And he was determined to keep us there so that we could get that education. You know, just as you were saying that, I was thinking, wasn't Barack Obama in Indonesia at he that was, same time? He was. It was just a little bit um, different timing than me, but uh, he was there. As a little and, boy, right? He yeah. was there with his mom. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, I think he was 
I don't think he was living in Jakarta. I think he was living somewhere else. But have you ever yeah. shared notes about your? No, we never time shared there. notes about our time there. But um, but I do still. I mean, I I loved Indonesia. I spoke the language, um, and I still sing all the songs in Indonesian. And so it was really fun. Recently, the Indonesian ambassador invited me to his house for dinner. Just just a very private. He's a chef actually. He loves to cook. Oh, wow. So it was he and his wife and my husband and I. And in the middle of the dinner, my husband says, "You know, she still sings Indonesian." songs. And the ambassador says, what? And immediately his wife comes up and she says, what song do you still remember? And I said, Ayomama, which is a, an old Indonesian song. And she says, let's sing it. And so we start singing Ayomama and it ends up on the Indonesian embassy's Twitter feed. Uh, well, <laughs> so it wasn't that add- private. <laughs> don't we want to ask her to private. sing a little bit of it? I know, right? No, no I don't no, think so. No, okay. <laughs> so you came to the, U- uh, to the U.S. as a 16-year-old girl uh, by yourself. You were an yeah. unaccompanied minor in yes. a sense. To come to school, you went to Georgetown, I yeah. think. So was that a case of you wanting to leave and come here or your parents wanting to send you here? No. For whatever reason, my father in particular always believed that the United States had the best education system. A lot of our friends, if they had money, would send their kids to the UK because yeah. India is a colonial. And so, but my father, for whatever reason, always believed it was the United States. And so he literally had $5,000 in his bank account when he sent me here. I mean, they took everything that they had. They used it to send me here. And I don't think I ever fully understood what a sacrifice mm-hmm. that was until my son turned 16. And I started to think about what that meant to send your kid across the ocean and know that they might never come back. And, and just now, to be that far away from them at all. To be all, that far enough. away. And because we had no money, um, you know, we, we wrote aerograms. Uh, pr- people listening probably don't remember what those are, but they were these just sort of things that you could fold up into three and send off, and they were cheap to mail. But we had enough money for one phone call home a year. Wow. So how long did you go without seeing them? I would go for an entire year. So I would go home in the summer. Oh, you would? Okay. Yeah, I would go back in the summer. And my sophomore year of college, um, I used my one phone call to call my dad and tell him that instead of an, being an economics major, I was going to be an English literature Uh-oh. major. <laughs> How'd that go over? It did not go well. I was on the hall phone in the dorm. I held the phone away from my ear as he, he screamed at me oh and said, God. I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. Wow. Well, you're in good company here. I'm an English major, too. Yeah, what was it like? I mean, were you terrified coming over here all by yourself? I think... I I was terrified, though. I don't know if I allowed myself to be. I think if you allowed yourself to be, you would sink into that place. And so I remember coming and I remember flying into JFK. And I wrote about this a little bit in my very first book that I ever wrote. And um, I just remember being struck by you know, there were a lot of couples like making out at JFK Airport. (laughs) And I had come from these relatively conservative places. And so I was just, I remember thinking, oh my God. And then I got to college and I had two suitcases because that's all you were allowed to take unless you pay. And we didn't want to pay for anything. And um, my roommate was from New Jersey, Gina Casimir, who I have recently gotten in touch with through Facebook. Um, and she came with her grandmother and her mother and just tons of stuff. Oh, totally. You know? So I got to the dorm room and there was all this family for her and there were all there was all this stuff. And I just remember 
you know, I mean, there were many nights when I wept. Um, that must have been, yeah, really difficult. Yeah, you know, I was just reading Michelle Obama's book, and she talks about going to Princeton and how out of place she yeah. felt for some of the same reasons you're describing. Did yeah. you feel that way at all? I did. I did. I had a, um, I went out and bought this poster of the Taj Mahal. And so I had this poster of the Taj Mahal and it actually said India on the bottom. And I had a next door neighbor who was extremely wealthy and she came in and she said, oh my gosh, is that your, is that your family home? <laughs> and I thought she was kidding. This was like the first day, first week of college. And I said, no, it's actually the servants quarters. The home is too big to fit on there. <laughs> and she said, are you a, are you a princess? I said, well, I am, but please don't call me. Me, Princess Pramila. It's embarrassing to me. Oh my gosh. A week later, somebody called me Princess Pramila. So that story got around. But, you know, I had to use humor and some other ways. But I also felt incredibly fortunate. Um, I'm curious if you're, it sounds like your dad sent you here, obviously, to make a life for yourself and to be successful. But I wonder if any of the sort of political, um, like, did, did, did that come from your parents at all in terms of their point of view or? Not really. They weren't very political. Now, they were very service minded. I mean, okay. we did a lot of volunteer work. We so used to is... volunteer. In the... Yeah, but they were totally apolitical. My mother has become a crazy U.S. politics person ever since I've been elected. She knows everything. And they're still in India, right? They're still in India, yeah. But no, that didn't really come from them. And I never, I never thought I was going to be in politics. If you had asked me, I mean, as recently as five or seven years ago, I would have said no. Oh, really? You were an organizer at that point? or I was an organizer for um, 15 years before uh, running an immigrant rights organization post 9-11. Before that, I worked for 10 years in public health, international public health around the world. So the work I was doing was political, but actually being an elected official was not something I was thinking about. Yeah, uh, we're going to continue our conversation, but we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of our conversation with Congresswoman Pramila Jaipal from Seattle. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, here as always with Scott Schaefer, and our guest tonight is Congresswoman Jamila 
Wow, I messed it up. I told you I wasn't going. I think it's on here. Pramila Jayapal. She is a Seattle congresswoman and the leader of the Progressive Caucus. But before all of that, you were, well, we just talked about you came over here by yourself and then became an English major and then went to work in business. Yeah. How did that I went to work happen? Out because when my dad yelled at me, I said I will get the same job with an English lit major that I would have gotten with an economics major. And you had major. to prove him, right? I had, to pr- yeah. I had to prove I could do that. So I went to work on Wall Street in the mid-1980s and leveraged buyouts where wow. Mike Milken was king. Wow. And junk bonds were hot. And um, I was doing that for two years. And it was, it was great training in that... Um, I really learned to understand numbers. I'm really good at numbers, and people don't expect that from me. And so I love leading them on to think that, you know, their stereotype is whatever it is, and then finding the error in the spreadsheet. Always good to be minutes. underestimated. Exactly. It's a it's a tactic of mine. So um, so it was really helpful, but I, I knew I didn't want to do it. I mean, I did it for two years, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do, so I... That's that's a really f- long distance from doing Im- immigrant rights organizing. So, yeah. how, and then how, you did some medical. Med- you were selling I medical did. equipment. I sold defibrillators in Western Ohio <laughs> and Eastern Indiana, and I drove a Ford Aerostar van, and I had a thing in the back that I would pull out, and it had all these defibrillators on it. What was and, your pitch when you yeah, sold? Yeah, were a you good? I was really good, and basically all the guys didn't didn't want me to be there because, you know, they you work really hard to get into medical sales at that level. You make mm-hmm. a lot of money, actually. And so they were like, who are you and why are you here? And you don't eat meat and you don't like football. And there's really a problem here. Um, but I stayed long enough to beat all the sales records. I, I was interested in heart issues, cardiac defibrillators, you know, I, I, I liked sort of the pieces behind it. And I would go, the thing I loved the most is I would go out on um, rides with the fire department, with the Cincinnati fire department. They were like, what, you want to come out with us on a Friday night? I'm like, yeah, I really want to see how you use the equipment. And, right. you know, and so they taught me how to get, became friends with them. And, but um, yeah, I decided that was all done. And then I moved to Seattle and started working in public health and then did that, lived in villages for for uh, several years on a fellowship in India and then and then moved into immigrant rights work. So did you always imagine yourself staying in the U.S. during that time? That is a really good question. I think I did, though I don't know if I always thought that I was going to stay here forever. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted my parents to be here. But it took me 17 years to get my citizenship. And by the time I did get my citizenship, they were just too old to come over. Um, and I think at that point, I realized I had been here too long for me to leave. It mm-hmm. was more home than anything. But it was, it, you know, that has been very difficult, particularly as they get older and um, they have a lot of issues now and they can't travel and they live on another continent. And it's, But it sounds like your mom's following every move on Twitter. She follows <laughs> everything. She calls me before. She she reads like the, the most arcane article. She'll call me and say, I read this article about you and how you introduced this amendment that took all the money, refuses to allow the money from disaster relief to be spent on detention beds. I'm like, Mom, where did you find that? <laughs> She's like in the weeds. She is not the first person who's told us that about yeah, her, no, her parents. Absolutely. So you became a citizen, I think, in 2000. I did. What do you remember about that naturalization ceremony? Were your parents there for that? They were not here. Um, and I went, uh, I went on my own. And I just remember that it was um, 
it was a tough process getting there. A lot of things that happened that were made it very hard for me to become a citizen. And so when I finally got it, I was I was sort of angry that it had taken me that mm. long. I didn't think I was going to be emotionally moved at all, actually. I thought I was going to be kind of blasé about it. And then there I was in this cavernous hall with people around me, hundreds of people around me, speaking all these different languages. And I just started to weep in thinking about how incredibly fortunate I am to become a U.S. citizen. I was at the time to become a U.S. citizen, how much it meant, what people had gone through, so much worse than what I had gone through or how long I'd had to wait, the things that people were escaping, the resilience and the beauty of a country that allows people from all over the world to come in and to help build it. And not that long afterwards was 9-11. How did that change things for you? Well, I had literally just become a U.S. citizen, and then 9-11 happened. And I remember watching, I just moved into a new house and watching on a little TV. I had a eight-inch TV, I think, and watching the scenes from, from New York and just thinking everything is going to change for people who look like me. And, um, and you know, within... Within a day, there were these hate crimes against Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians. I wasn't wearing my traditional clothes, which I sometimes wear. Um, I didn't go out for a few days. Um, And I started hearing about sick cab drivers who had been attacked and Muslim women wearing hijab who had been attacked and started getting phone calls from friends. And within five or six days, I just, I heard from a school teacher friend of mine who said that Uh, The Muslim kids were all the Muslim families were pulling their kids out of school. And I just wept and thought, this is not the country that I became a citizen of. I was so proud to become a citizen of. And I need to do something. And uh, that's how I started my immigrant rights organization. And so you did that and it became very successful. And I mean, you, I think, went and got arrested in uh, the halls of Congress several times, several times (laughs) while Obama was president. I wonder, you know, kind of fast forwarding through those 16 years, though, like, how did you feel when you saw what Obama did around immigration policy? It was it was really hard because, you know, I stayed up and read his book when he was running. I wept. I I cry. You know, I very emotional, take things in. And um, I just was so moved by his becoming uh, being a candidate. And and then he became president. And, um, you know, he he did things that I never thought he would do. And that was very difficult. And I think that we had to call him out. Um, the immigrant rights movement did. Um, there's a there's a clip of me on C-SPAN calling him to Porter in Chief. Um, got over a million views really quickly. Did you, get, you, did you coin that? that phrase? I didn't coin it, okay. no. But I did call him that. Um, so and it was of, tough. So in light of all that, uh, you got elected the same night that Donald Trump got elected, right? Yeah. In 2016 to, the, to Congress. Talk about that. dichotomy of feelings. I mean, wow. That was a bittersweet moment. You know, we had run an incredible campaign. It was uh, one of the most expensive non-swing district races in the country, $7 million race. We had knocked on 120,000 doors, made 240,000 phone calls, had over 1,200 volunteers. It was amazing. And then here we were waiting for our election results, and they announced that Donald Trump is going to be president. And and over the, the... maybe hour, hour and a half before that, it started to dawn on me as I watched the results that I was not going to be the person that was trying to pull Hillary Clinton to the left. <laughs> I was going to be 
in a Congress if I was elected with a guy that I nobody could ever believe would would be in the White House. And so it was very difficult. There were a few bright moments there. Ilhan Omar was elected to the state legislature in Minnesota at the same time I was elected to Congress. You know, there were a few of us women of color around the country that people sort of held on to as this is our hope um, in a time that nobody could honestly mm-hmm. believe. Well, and you quickly emerged in Congress as a really, you know, powerful voice on the left, you know, running, co-chairing the Progressive Caucus or chairing? No, I just got cha- elected as co-chair. I was the first vice chair okay. in my first term. And, you know, I think that um, for folks like yourself who come out of the organizing committee, you're bringing a different sort of approach to politics than maybe folks who have been in Congress for 20 years. Um, for example, like I know you were one of the first people to talk about reimagining immigration and customs enforcement. And I think that the right saw that as a gift in some ways, that they think that that's the way that they drive a wedge between Democrats and some of the, you know, some maybe some swing voters. I guess just broadly, like, how do you approach those sorts of things? And and are you thinking about them when you're making those comments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've worked on immigration for 15 years. I know the issue like the back of my hand. I've gone on Tucker, you know, on with Tucker Carlson. I'm happy to argue with any of those Fox people. They're not very smart on this issue in my mind. And they don't speak for the majority of the country. I think, you know, Republicans, unfortunately, under this president will never fix what desperately needs to be fixed, an immigration system that hasn't been updated in decades. But, you know, they leave it out there because they think it's a potent divisive tool, mm-hmm. like you said. I think they're wrong. And I think 2018 proved that they were wrong, the 2018 election. But I also think that, you know, the American people that I know, whether they're Republican or Democrat, the vast majority do have some connection to their personal history, some connection to what immigration means to their family Mm -hmm. and to this country. And I think if we continue to allow that to be to emerge and not lose hope in the American people, we will ultimately succeed. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos, and our guest is Democrat Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from Washington State. Let's talk about the progressives in Congress. Um, And our Congresswoman, Nancy Pelosi, right? Yeah, so (laughs) that's right. Uh, So there's a lot of progressives. A lot of them are freshmen. You're flexing your muscles uh, back there. And there was a movement even to get rid of Nancy Pelosi and replace her with somebody, I guess, I don't know, more just more progressive. Talk about the negotiations with uh, the now speaker, Pelosi, and uh, what your thoughts were going into that those discussions. I mean, did you support her being speaker or would you have liked her to sort of step aside for somebody else? And what were those those discussions like? Well, there was no one that had emerged running against her that was more progressive than Nancy Pelosi. Um, and so I think that was an important factor for us. But at the same time, we felt that we needed to leverage our power to make sure that we got as much as we could for progressives. Because unfortunately, you know, conservative Democrats sometimes tend to run the party as if they're they're the center. And we know that even in swing districts, people were elected by progressives. We went finally from the myth of the likely voter to the truth of every voter. And it was young people, folks of color, women who turned out and elected these folks. So we went into a negotiation with Leader Pelosi, um, Mark Pocan, my co-chair and I, and we said, um, here are the things we want. Uh, progressives are not represented on the money committees, the exclusive committees. Mm. We want more progressives in leadership. And we outlined several 
kind of requests that we had, and we said, look, we'd love to support you. Um, I like to say requests. Uh, (laughs) And we'd love to support you, but we need to be able to go back to our base and say that you are taking the progressive movement seriously. We are the largest values-based caucus in the House, and we want to have power proportional to that. Um, and she uh, she agreed. Now, what was a funny little story, as we were walking into her office, one of her very good staffers said to us, um, well, we just called Move On and Indivisible and Audie Barkin, a really acti- disability rights activist, very prominent activist, to ask them for their support. And they said that they're waiting um, to hear how this meeting with Jayapal and Pokan go. And she said, so that's how you want to play it, huh? And I said, it's it's the power of the progressive movement. We're all together. And, well, uh, it sounds like you're a pretty good negotiator that Pelosi may have met her match in some ways. Well, and she you. appreciates power yeah, and people she who does. understand and it, And listen, right? she is one smart... I described her as badass recently. <laughs> she is. And I said, it's the ultimate compliment. You know, she... Um, I have traveled with her. She is a very smart legislator um, and uh, she understands power and she's willing to stand up to Trump as we saw. She did a phenomenal job in the last several weeks around the shutdown. I always like to remind people that she did raise five kids in like six to- years. So I think totally Congress I mean, is probably not. No, <laughs> she knows and how to she, she's a grandmother and she knows when somebody's throwing a temper tantrum over a ridiculous <laughs> request, she's not going to give in to that. Um, so we talked a lot about immigration. You know, another key issue for Democrats has been health care. Um, and our, our own Senator Kamala Harris got some attention recently when she responded to a question from CNN's Jake Tapper at her Iowa town hall right after she announced she's running for president. Um, and then Howard Schultz, who might run, um, said something. So I want to play you both of those cuts and talk a little bit about this debate. Just, so just to follow up. Just to follow up on that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, to reiterate, you support uh, the Medicare for All bill, I think initially co-sponsored by Senator Bernie Sanders. You're also a co-sponsor on on it. I believe it will totally eliminate private insurance. Um, So for people out there who like their insurance, they don't get to keep it? Well, listen, the idea is that everyone gets access to medical care. And you don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company, having them give you approval, going through the paperwork, all of the delay that may require. Who of us has, has not had that situation where you've got to wait for approval and the doctor says, well, I don't know if your, your insurance company is going to cover this? Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. Well, you just played uh, Senator Harris as saying she wants to abolish the insurance industry. That's, that's not correct. That's not American. What's next? What, what industry are we going to abolish next? The coffee industry? <laughs> so you're rolling your eyes. So this is, I do think, though, gets at something that's important, which is this is super complicated. And it's often mischaracterized by politicians on all sides um, what single payer is, Medicare for all versus, say, universal health care. I mean, Politico basically framed it as, as that Harris committed a gaffe by actually, not by misspeaking, but describing it accurately. Right. <laughs> so so they, they say in Washington that uh, a gaffe is accidentally telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this gets to this question because, you know, healthcare has been a really potent thing for both parties, depending on the year. And I'm just wondering how you think Democrats should be framing this as 2020 approaches, because it is hard and it's a lot to sort of wrap your mind around. Well, look, I'm I'm uh, 
I'm sponsoring the Medicare for All bill in the House, so I'm taking over that bill. John Conyers had 676 for 20 years. It was an outline. It was an excellent bill, but it was an eight-page document. Um, It was not sort of a a blueprint for how you move forward. And so I founded the Medicare for All caucus, and I just firmly believe that this is not a radical idea. This is an idea that almost every industrialized country in the world has instituted. And when, uh, you know, when you say that it's unaffordable, it's unaffordable to keep the system that we have. First of all, it's 19 percent of GDP. Secondly, we've got 30 million Americans who are uninsured, 40 million who are underinsured, and that's a low estimate. And, you know, you have people now who are covered, supposedly. I, I just had a constituent write to me. He's disabled. He's covered by his employer, um, and he pays $35,000 a year in co-pays, deductibles, and premiums. Medicare for All is a system that takes an underlying Medicare system, expands it, improves it, and makes sure that it covers everybody. But why not just offer that to uh, serve as a public option? And what's the difference in your mind between that and Medicare for All, which would really eliminate insurance Well, the problem with a public option is it really doesn't get at the problems that exist within the healthcare system um, on many levels. First of all, it doesn't control costs, which is one of the big things you have to do is you've got to control the costs within the system. Pharmaceutical companies are making $125 billion in profits right now. Insurance companies are making enormous amounts of profits. And what we need to do is control those costs. Number two, you've got to have a big enough pool, and you can't have all the sick people being covered by government insurance because that will make sure that it's unaffordable. So what Medicare for All does that a public option does not do is it makes sure you've got a big enough pool of healthy people, sick people, and it gets you preventive care so that you don't wait for curative care. It eliminates administrative costs, and ultimately it is the more moral thing to do, but it's also the right thing to do for costs and for our economy in the future. See, we got her on policy, even though we <laughs> promise not to. No, it's hard it. not to. So I know that you have said you're not going to, um, this is our final question, that you're not going to you know, endorse anybody yet for 2020. More broadly, what do you want to see as, as a leader in the progressive movement? And, you know, we have about a minute left. So <laughs> I just want to see somebody who is bold about what the United States can and should be um, and is willing to take on the special interests that are blocking that progress. And that is on every level. I want to see income inequality be at the center of this. I want to see race being taken on as it really needs to be taken on. And I want people who are not afraid to be transformative thinkers. That is always what has brought the United States to the right place, and that's what we need again. Should be a fun uh, fun primary. It's going to be quite a, quite a primary indeed. Well, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us. Thank you both so much yeah, for having me on. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer is Seal Muller. Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor. Vinny Tong is our new managing editor. Hey, Vinny. Holly Kernan's our chief content officer. I'm Marisa Lagos. Find me on Twitter at mlagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm 
Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.